global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. BRICS and other developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finances, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. People have always been enamored with technology and the way it eases our burdens while amplifying the limited computing capacity of our brains. We are surrounded by low and high technology, and many of us use both nonstop throughout our days. We rely on our technology to entertain us, to remember things for us and remind us, to augment our reality, and even to suggest improvements for our lives. How far are we willing to go? Or in other words, how much of our autonomy in thinking and doing are we willing to cede to our technological creations? And how much do we trust other nations in their technological developments? Artificial intelligence is not a new concept. Serious scholarly publications discussing AI began to appear in the 1990s and increased significantly from 2000 to 2007 and again in 2014. As of today, approximately 60,000 research papers per year are focused on AI. Ray Kurzweil, Google's director of engineering, predicts that by 2029, computers will have human-level intelligence. Interest in AI is global, with significant support and developments in the U.S., Western Europe, and advanced Asian countries such as China, Japan, and South Korea. Technology, including AI, is a great societal leveler, and it only respects national boundaries when it is crafted to do so. For a topic so vast, complicated, and potentially perilous to human existence, many believe we need global guidelines and agreements so that we do not cede too much control to our technology. Should leadership on crafting global solutions come from the executive branches of world governments, from international or national legislative bodies, from the business community, from universities and research institutions, or from non-governmental organizations? Can we craft a global solution among allies and antagonists to ensure fairness, accountability, and transparency? Today, we are joined by Dr. Valerie M. Hudson to discuss the global governance of AI. Dr. Hudson is a university distinguished professor and holds the George H.W. Bush Chair in the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University where she directs the program on women, peace, and security. Her research includes foreign policy analysis, security studies, gender and international relations, and methodology. Dr. Hudson's articles have appeared in numerous journals, such as International Security, the American Political Science Review, Foreign Policy, and Politico. She is the author or editor of several books, including Bear Branches, The Security Implications of Asia's Surplus Male Population, which won the American Association of Publishers Award for the Best Book in Political Science and the Otis Dudley Duncan Award for Best Book in Social Demography, resulting in feature stories in the New York Times, The Economist, 60 Minutes, and other news publications. Dr. Hudson was named to the list of foreign policy magazine's top 100 global thinkers for 2009 
and in 2015 was recognized as Distinguished Scholar of Foreign Policy Analysis. She has received numerous teaching awards, fellowships, and grants, including a Minerva Initiative grant from the U.S. Department of Defense. Dr. Hudson is one of the principal investigators of the Women's Stats Project at womenstats.org, which includes the largest compilation of data on the status of women in the world today. She has testified three times before the House Foreign Affairs Committee, assisted the National Intelligence Council in preparing its 2017 Global Trends Paradox of Progress report, and served as a member of the expert group on the Data 2X initiative. Her latest co-authored book project is The First Political Order, How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide, published in 2020 by Columbia University Press. Dr. Hudson, thank you for being with us today. Thanks very much for having me here. Dr. Hudson, starting a few years ago, I noticed that AI became a, a buzzword in, in China, where, where I lived for, for over a decade. All of a sudden, it became the fashionable thing for, for youngsters to say when, when you ask them what they wanted to go into. So first of all, how would you describe AI in, in, a, uh, in a simple way? And how is it that your own career path took you into AI? Well, my, um, my career path has been um, not very straightforward in terms of artificial intelligence. Uh, that is to say, when uh, I was a doctoral student, um, I did work heavily in AI. Um, we were trying to adapt uh, AI technologies uh, for the purposes of studying international affairs. And so actually, my very first book project was one called Artificial Intelligence and International Politics. Uh, but that was, uh, you know, quite some time ago. Um, and uh, in the meantime, I've been involved in very large data projects, such as the Womestats data project. But I've always had one eye uh, that uh, uh, on, on how these artificially intelligent uh, mechanisms uh, that I studied uh, as a doctoral student and, and created as a doctoral student uh, were beginning to be used uh, by governments uh, to um, not only monitor their populations, but to control their populations. Uh, if you've lived in China recently, perhaps uh, from what you say you have, uh, you know that the, the government is tracking you virtually every moment of the day. Anything that you do uh, is, uh, for example, um, one of my friends who lives in China now, if he wants to use uh, the uh, washing machine in his apartment complex, uh, he will have to um, do a contactless card uh, that will allow him to do so. Uh, so he can't even do his laundry uh, without the Chinese government knowing that he ha has done his laundry. It is really amazing to see uh, how much the state of China uh, has um, begun to utilize these systems uh, in a, to, for social control. And that's why I was very interested in picking up this thread uh, once more. Dr. Hudson, we know that China has been on the rise, especially for the last 20 years, and so has obviously been a big player in this conversation. But why do you see now as a turning point for AI in our society? That's a brilliant question. And I think the reason that it is a turning point 
is that uh, other states outside of China have seen the example of China, and many of them are eager to emulate China. Uh, but China is a closed one-party system that makes no pretenses about being an authoritarian political um, unit. Uh, whereas the other countries that are looking at China uh, with some jealousy are, are based on different political principles. So the question becomes now, before we start wholesale importing, uh, if you will, the uh, Weltanschauung, the worldview that China has on artificial intelligence and social control, before we start deploying the technologies that China has begun to deploy. It is time uh, for us to ask ourselves uh, what we want the limits of this technology to be in order to maintain the core political values of our society. If I can ask you a follow-up question on that, I see, and I'm sure you see this too, those of us who are watching the international stage see a is a collision. I mean, we have the natural collision between authoritarian governments and more democratically leaning governments. And I, I applaud you for what you're trying to do. And we'll talk about it in a little bit. It seems to me that, that China is so good at putting up its, its great firewall and exporting its, uh, its frame of gov its form of governance and it, the technology to back it up that do you ultimately, this is just kind of a, a gut feeling. Do you feel like uh, we have a positive future ahead of us or is it going to be a long slog no matter what? Oh, the future is always a long slog. <laughs> it was never meant to be uh, some sort of cakewalk. Um, you know, human society calls out best and the worst in all of us. Uh, and for those who are committed to maintaining a livable society, uh, that also has meaningful freedom and uh, agency. Uh, it will be uh, a constant struggle necessitating constant vigilance because the allure of AI is that uh, you don't actually have to spend a lot of human effort, human discernment, uh, human um, ethical uh, uh, discussion and deliberation. Um, it, it allows um, previously programmed um, technologies and algorithms to do that for you. Uh, and I would say that uh, at, at the heart of it, one of the things that is evolutionarily programmed into human beings is to expend the least amount of effort uh, required uh, to do something. Uh, at heart, we are all evolutionarily programmed to be quite lazy. Uh, and therefore, I think uh, it is very natural um, for decision makers to adopt these technologies that allow for the substitution of intense uh, human effort and deliberation. So they will be appealing, not simply to authoritarians, uh, but to every human ruler. Uh, and I think that's the inherent risk. Um, with the developing these quote-unquote labor-saving technologies. Dr. Hudson, these risks that, that you describe that go hand-in-hand hand with the allure of the technology, um, do you think that the ongoing uh, COVID-19 pandemic is in any way intensifying 
the risks uh, associated with artificial intelligence. You bet. Absolutely. Um, every emergency um, is a double-edged sword. Uh, a, a disruptive emergency, uh, like the current pandemic emergency, allows very good ideas to come to the fore, but it also allows the justification of measures that we would never countenance in a non-emergency situation. So, for example, uh, the state of Washington, as you know, is very keen on civil liberties. And yet, because they were one of the initial hotspots uh, for the coronavirus, um, they have also been uh, the first to legalize the deployment of facial recognition technology. Uh, this was shocking to me. I could never imagine that a state like Washington would be the first to agree to this. But it was justified as an emergency measure uh, to counter the needs of the current pandemic. Uh, likewise, Connecticut. Connecticut is a deeply blue state. Uh, Connecticut is now experimenting um, with drone systems uh, to remotely um, take the temperature of those in Connecticut cities and towns, uh, as well as to artificially in, uh, uh, determine whether a person is coughing or sneezing. Uh, this should raise alarm bells that in the bluest of states, those that would, uh, one would assume would be most committed to civil liberties, that this pandemic has resulted in the deployment of technology that I would argue their citizens would otherwise be very wary about. I think for me, this calls to mind the uh, bringing home all of the military-style equipment from the Middle East wars and uh, and letting local police units buy it or lease it or get it really cheaply from the government, right? Where all of a sudden we have things that were never intended for civilian use being being deployed in in civilian uh, environment. Does does that is, am I seeing that wrong, or do you see a, a parallel there as well, Doctor Hudson? I do see a parallel there because, as as you know, um, the best funded areas of AI uh, are those which have military applications and are able to have massive Defense Department funding behind them. So, yes, uh, while uh, people are saying, you know, oh, this wonderful military technology, if we tweaked it a little, you know, it could be good for a civilian purpose. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right that we must remember the origin of a lot of this technology. And the origin of a lot of this technology uh, is the, um, a military desire to win, to dominate, to totally monitor, to control, and that those capabilities are built right in to the existing off-the-shelf technologies. Uh, similarly, I would argue that those technologies that are coming from the corporate world have built right into them um, ideals of uh, economic monitoring and economic control. Uh, and so it seems to me that citizens ought to be very vigilant about technologies that have been originated um, by those who have um, uh, different motives uh, than. Um, the average citizen would want for his or her own life. So if we are looking at uh, some kind of global governance structure 
and you you've said that it needs to be something beyond a digital bill of rights. What do you think is needed that can really get the conversation started in a in a meaningful way? Yes, well, I I think it starts with a digital bill of rights. You know, I think uh, if you recall why we even have a bill of rights is that there was a substantial proportion of the colonial population that was very leery of having a strong federal government uh, and that it was only by promising uh, these uh, folks that there would be a bill of rights that would set out uh, inalienable rights that every person had simply as a result of existing, not rights that were given to them by the state, but rights that were inherent to the dignity of the human situation. Uh, you know, that was uh, key to having the uh, American political system as we know it today. Uh, and so now in the face of these new technologies, right, what we need is a digital bill of rights that sets out what kind of rights a human being has in the face of a new and, and overwhelming governance structure. Uh, but in addition to a digital bill of rights, and I think there could be broad agreement uh, about the values uh, inherent in, in, that, uh, in that bill of rights, but beyond expressing that bill of rights, we now need to develop the architecture, the institutions, and the oversight that would be capable of, in fact, enforcing this digital bill of rights upon the actors, whether they be government actors, corporate actors, you name it, whatever actors are interested in deploying artificially intelligent systems. And that's where, uh, where I'm working now with a group, uh, an interdisciplinary group of scholars, uh, which is uh, once we have a, a broad agreement on what sort of rights an individual has in uh, our digital and artificially intelligent new age, how exactly can government assure and enforce those rights? Dr. Hudson, turning away from AI, I'd like to ask you about your other areas of research. And in particular, I'd like to ask about your work regarding the gender imbalance in China. This is an area that is still of, of much interest to me. And when I, I when I first went to China, I was a foreign service officer. I was working at the at the U.S. consulate in, in Guangzhou, uh, worked in the economic uh, political section, and, and this was one of the issues that, that we tracked. And for those of us who who paid close attention to it, it was uh, a very alarming issue. I, I remember looking at some of the statistics, not at the national level, but for some of the, for some of the provinces within uh, our uh, consular district. And, and these were uh, astounding statistics that even uh, when, when considered at a superficial level, uh, raised alarms. So I'd love to hear more about, about your work in that field uh, and also about other research uh, areas uh, in which, in which you have worked. Thank you very much for that question. Yes, in graduate school, I also turned my attention to the question of how what's going on with women affects the national security of the nation state. Uh, when I was doing my doctoral program in international relations and security studies at Ohio State University, 
you could have gone through my entire graduate program and not known there were women on the planet Earth. Uh, it was that womanless. And so the idea that national security could hinge in any way, shape, or form upon what was happening with women would have been seen as utterly ludicrous, utterly ridiculous at that time point. So it actually took me a while um, of thinking, reflecting, observing the world around me um, to begin to realize that it is impossible uh, for uh, what's going on with half, literally half the population of the world, uh, not to have an effect on what's going on uh, within nation states. So my first foray into that proposition was with my co-author, Andrea Denvor. Uh, and uh, she and I did uh, a massive work. It took us uh, years to do this work examining whether there was any linkage between um, the, um, the culling of girls from the birth populations of China and India uh, and national security challenges that those nations uh, were facing or would be facing in the future. Uh, and uh, that required us to really become radically interdisciplinary, uh, bootstrapping ourselves up in demographic techniques and sociology and history, uh, anthropology. It was really quite an amazing journey. Um, and that resulted in our being able to suggest uh, that culling 12 to 15 percent of the females in your society really does not have a salutary effect on your national security, but rather it destabilizes your society uh, and makes it more prone uh, not only to violence, but to a uh, collective uh, male grievance, um, which is uh, highly problematic for these nation states. And I think we're certainly, uh, you know, both China and India, I think, are reaping some of the consequences of their decision to so devaluate the lives of females uh, that families were incentivized to simply get rid of girls. And so can you speak broadly about which countries besides India and China have have reaped the uh the downside of, of this? Are there countries in the Middle East and Africa that are also impacted in any major way? Thank you for that question. Um, Sex-selective abortion and female infanticide uh, have roots in, in every culture. Uh, we could not find one single culture, whether in the Western Hemisphere or the Eastern Hemisphere, that had not historically been touched by female infanticide and the culling of girl infants. However, in the 20th century, uh, that phenomenon was largely confined uh, to China, India, and uh, the environs there. Uh, so South Korea, uh, Taiwan, uh, India, uh, and its surrounding countries such as Bangladesh and Pakistan, Nepal. However, in the 21st century, or even even slightly earlier than that, with the fall of the Soviet bloc, uh, we did find that nations turned again uh, to the culling of girl infants. So um, in, in 2015, we, we haven't gotten the 2020 census figures yet, so we don't know the latest figures, 
So in 2015, we find actually now almost, uh, I think there's almost 20 nations that have abnormal birth sex ratios. And those include places such as Albania uh, and Georgia and Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, as well as places such as Egypt, uh, island nations such as Vanuatu, uh, Southeast Asian nations such as Vietnam. So we have been seeing over the last uh, decade or more uh, a growing um, spread of uh, sex-selective abortion and female infanticide in places that we really did not see that happening in the 20th century. Though, as mentioned before, if you go back far enough, you can find uh, this kind of approach to females in virtually every society. And do you see... The United States, at least under our current administration, the pulling back from international obligations and really a, a feeling of responsibility to to help foster Western ideals in the rest of the world. Do you see all of this in the backdrop as uh, as affecting? Is it accelerating any trends? Is it is it good or bad? I, I have to assume that it's not a good trend. Uh, but what do you what do you think generally? If I can get a little political on you, you know, it certainly was the case that uh, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State um, in the first four years of the Obama administration, um, that she did an amazing work um, on the promotion of uh, women's empowerment and women's rights as a means of uh, stabilizing nations. Um, and uh, For example, the Office of Global Women's Issues was uh, uh, enlarged and raised in status uh, tremendously uh, during uh, those first four years. Uh, we established an ambassador for global women's issues, uh, which position had never existed before. Um, we developed um, the Quadrennial uh, Diplomacy and Development Review so uh, an analog to, to the Quadrennial Defense Review, the, which is the QDR. We had the QDDR, the Diplomacy and Defense Review, uh, which really um, honed in and focused and emphasized the idea uh, that unless we raise the uh, situation of women in the world, societies will continue to be violent and unstable. And I think that uh, most of the research that I've done over the last 20 years has uh, tried to provide an empirical support for that proposition. Uh, as mentioned, for example, in our latest book, The First Political Order, How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide. Um, so unfortunately, after Hillary Clinton stepped down as Secretary of State, um, there was a fading even within the time period of the Obama administration on the importance of these issues. Under the Trump administration, um, the Office of Global Women's Issues, uh, the ambassador for the Global Women's Issues, that position went unfilled for virtually three years. We only just got Ambassador Kelly Curry uh, into that position after uh, a long um, period of time in which that office was simply not filled. Uh, I think the emphasis has turned from uh, political and security rights for women 
to uh, focus almost exclusively on economic empowerment of women under Ivanka Trump, who has promulgated the women's uh, development uh, program uh, as being the, the um, sort of sole focus for women in the administration. Uh, so, um, you know, I think there has been, uh, we did have a heyday with Hillary Clinton, uh, but I think that the uh, emphasis on these issues has faded over time in the United States. Dr. Hudson, this has been a, a most informative conversation. In addition to what we glean from conversations with uh, folks like you, we, we also want to uh, share with, with our listeners uh, materials that, that we are we are reading, reviewing, in order to give them even more opportunities to, to learn about, about interesting subjects. And on, on that note, I'd like to, to ask you if you could if you could recommend something that you're you're reading at the moment or perhaps uh, something that you're you're watching. Uh, it could be a movie, it could be a TV series, uh, anything in fact that uh, could could be of interesting to our to our listeners. Yeah, well, with reference to the two topics that we've um, engaged today, if one wishes to know more about um, the threat of uh, data collection um, and artificial intelligence um, to our democracy, I think the uh, the most magisterial work is Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism. Uh, it's uh, approximately 800 pages long, uh, but it is uh, wonderfully set up so that if it's uh, on your, your nightstand, read about 10 pages or 20 pages before you go to bed at night, um, it's, it, it sort of accretes over time, concept on concept, precept on precept, so that is actually a good way to read the book. And it is a deeply concerning um, examination of what technologies are currently available. And I think it sparked my um, interest in uh, developing uh, policy mechanisms uh, to handle and cope with this threat. Uh, on the issue of how uh, the situation of women affects the national security and even international security of our world, then, uh, you know, I don't mean to be self-serving, but I would like to suggest that um, our book, The First Political Order, which is talking about how the very first political order in any society is the first political order established between the two halves of that society, men and women, and that everything that that, uh, that is in our society is molded and um, uh, dyed with the flavor of that first political order. Uh, and that uh, was just published last month by Columbia University Press. Uh, it's also pretty long, it's about 600 pages in length, but I can assure you that um, your readers would be very, uh, I think, um, interested in both books. So Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism and my own work with my co-authors Donnelly Bowen and Perpetua Lynn Nielsen called The First Political Order, 
how sex shapes governance and national security worldwide. Thank you for sharing. Jonathan, what about you? I've been thinking a lot about how the economy is going to recover post-COVID-19. And a little while ago, I read a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. He's the co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, which is a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, very respected entrepreneur. Um, And what I like about this is he looks at business as a series of hard decisions to be made. Since a lot of books really gloss over, you know, they kind of focus on the CEO or whoever's success what they did, what they did right over time, over, you know, time and time again. And he really digs into his own past and dealing with a lot of turnaround situations and, and dealing with some gut-wrenching decisions like uh, how do you fire your best friend from a company you're in, um, which is, uh, it's, it's not a very feel-good book other than um, I think it's really good to think that, uh, like Dr. Hudson said, life, life is a long slog and it's going to be a series of difficult decisions. And for those of us who are millennials or trend toward the millennial mindset, I think it's very helpful to remind ourselves that uh, this was not intended to be easy. It's intended to be a very serious workout in our lives. And so I like the, you know, the real straight talk that we get from Ben Horowitz in this book. And and I think it offers some good insights for companies that are struggling now with the effects of COVID-19 and also how to rebuild their companies as we rebuild the economy this year and, and in the coming years. What about you, Fred? What have you been reading? My reading has been uh, pretty, pretty lawyerly. I have to say I've been, I've been really focused on a Supreme court decision that, that just came down. Uh, the name of the case is uh, Ramos versus Louisiana. And it is a decision that involves uh, uh or examines the question of unanimity in, in jury verdicts. Um, and it, it is of interest to me for, for, for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is the fact that the, the split in the, in the uh, decision is, is very atypical. We, we, you, know, you have judges that typically stand on, on opposite sides, sort of banding together uh, as they consider this one issue. Uh, part of what also is interesting to me is, is the fact that um, this, this decision will, will have uh, an outsized impact on, on Puerto Rico, where, where, where I grew up. The, the only states that are really affected by the decision are Louisiana and, and Oregon, as well as Puerto Rico. These are the only jurisdictions that have uh, that allow non-unanimous verdicts. Um, and, and perhaps the most um, interesting aspect of it for me is this uh, analysis of, of how it is that our, our laws change and how much uh, import we should give to to, to traditions. Uh, one of the writing for the majority, um, Justice Gorsuch, um, he, he talks about the importance of common law principles regarding uh, the importance of unanimous jury verdicts. But the irony is that the UK um, has moved away from unanimity and actually allows non-unanimous verdicts. So it's interesting to see the the arguments made. Um, So it is a bit uh, lawyerly, like I said, not not perhaps um, the uh, the most... uh, 
uh, exciting reading uh, for, for, for some, but at least uh, for anyone who, who has an interest in, in these uh, issues, uh, I'd, I'd recommend you take a look at Ramos versus Louisiana. Dr. Hudson, thank you for your time today. We appreciate you and your insights, and I feel like we could ask you questions for hours and hours and, and never get tired, but I'm sure you would. Uh, so thank you again for being with us, and we look forward to, uh, to following your work uh, and with this new, new book that came out just last month. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, Dr. Hudson. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to discuss developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.